Hello and welcome to Against the Law, the myth-busting ancient history podcast. Today, as we release the podcast, it is Remembrance Sunday. For listeners overseas, in the United Kingdom, we have this day to commemorate and reflect on those who fought and those who died in conflict since World War I. We're taking a look now at ancient remembrance, how the ancient Greeks, Romans and those from the ancient Near East commemorated the people they lost to war. For this episode, we have a very special guest, Rebecca Bradshaw. She's the Assistant Professor of Tourism and Cultural Heritage at United Arab Emirates University, TV broadcaster and journalist. You can catch up with her column in the UAE English language paper, The National. Also joining Rebecca, we have Xenia, who will be bringing her knowledge about the ancient Romans, and Meg, who loves all things ancient Greek. Barney, who usually joins us to share information about the ancient Near East, is currently in Egypt, and we can't wait to hear all about his trip when he returns. I'm Flo. And I don't know much about the ancient world, but I'm excited to learn with you, our listener, from Rebecca and the Against the Law team. So this episode is going to be published on Remembrance Sunday, and we've done an episode previously on the topic of death, which is always cheery. Um, but But we came across a lot of instances where maybe the attitude towards death and remembrance was very different in the ancient world. So does anyone have any examples of of behaviour or uh, rituals or routines that might be different to what we experience now? I can give an example which I think is interesting, that even within ancient Greece, there were quite different attitudes towards kind of death and burial and commemoration, especially after war. So we've talked a lot, I think, in previous episodes about Sparta being kind of exceptional um, in ancient Greece in various ways, but maybe less exceptional than they have the reputation for. But um, Athens and Sparta, for example, had really different attitudes towards kind of public uh, commemoration of war. And burial after war. So Athens had big public burial sites and everyone would be buried after a battle, everyone, everyone at the end of the kind of campaign season, everyone would be buried at once in a collective funeral and someone would give a speech um, and there were sort of lists of the dead on monuments like we have now. But in Sparta, people would be buried sort of on the battlefield or occasionally they'd be taken back to the city, but, but often buried actually on the battlefield where they died. So that was on site where, where they fell, as it were? Yeah, buried kind of immediately after the battle in the battlefield often. Oh, that's really interesting. So we obviously have funerals and we have yearly remembrance services. Often the overtone of those of those events is very sombre. Is it similar in, in the ancient world? Um, anybody? So for the Romans, it's not so much commemoration of life as commemoration of victory. So I know last time when we talked about death and ghosts in our ghost episode, we um, I mentioned that the Romans were very concerned that people who died should have the appropriate rights and things so that they would be at rest in the in the afterlife. But there's one very clear exception, and that is people who die in war. And in fact, they went to they went to fairly great lengths to um, do mass burials and not to commemorate those, not to put up any kind of stones uh, or any kind of memorials on site so that the emphasis was not actually on the loss of life that was sustained in that battle, but instead on the victory afterwards that the Romans could celebrate within Rome itself in a great big triumph. And in fact, Roman triumphs had a, had a minimum number of dead, not from the Roman side, from the enemy's side, really. Um, but you had to have a minimum of 5,000 deaths from the enemy in order to be awarded a triumph. So that kind of link between death and victory is uh, is quite strong in the Roman Empire. So yeah, I would say, if I can jump in, um, the same sort of um, vibe runs through um, ancient Egypt. 
far less about any sort of sadness or need to commemorate the sacrifices of people that died. It was far more about Pharaoh and the fact that he was upholding um, one of his key jobs. One of the, the things that he needed to do on behalf of the gods was um, maintain this balance between order and chaos. Um, and so that's why we see on the outside of temple walls and a lot of um, material culture from the very earliest days, sort of pre-dynastic Egypt, we have what we call pharaonic smiting scenes where the pharaoh is holding the hair of his enemy in one hand and he's holding a mace in the other and he's sort of perpetually in this moment before their death. It was important because the, the idea of creating an image is that these images are repetitions of this act. So he's forever smiting his enemies. And the uh, images that show you know, the hundreds of dead, um, whether Egyptian or foreign enemy, um, does not play part of this, this sort of narrative in the same way. So he's almost frozen in that moment of glory there. You wouldn't necessarily, not in the Western world nowadays, create a monument um that I think we would consider quite bloodthirsty or quite gruesome. Mm. I think it's interesting that that moment of glory has been captured in stone. Well, it makes me think that there's a sort of, there's a sanitization. For example, of course, we have the, you know, um, in, in the UK, in London, we have um, Nelson's column representing, you know, his great victory at Trafalgar. That statue represents death, but it's been sanitised in a very different way that, you know, the ancient Egyptian reliefs, they, they haven't bothered sanitising because that's not what they want to show. But these, as we know from the Black Lives Matter, you know, these recent protests and the tearing down of monuments of slave traders and so on, is because they don't have to necessarily show the thousands dead. The, the fact is you've still got this man, typically, um, who represents the thousands dead or the thousands beaten and tortured and so on. Mm, yeah, that's such a great point. That's so interesting. I'm recording from Bristol, um, where obviously the statue of Colston was torn down. I think that's a really good point as well, that it, the statues can be both uh, images which show something happening, but also symbolic of a much wider thing. And you definitely get the same thing in Athens, like even the speeches themselves. So I was saying that there's these collective funerals. Um, someone gives a speech and the, the most famous one is Pericles, who is an Athenian statesman and general. And his speeches, the funeral oration, is very much about Athens as a city, as a state, with the individual war, or it's at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War, the individual battles representing the might of Athens more generally. So there's definitely that sense of a kind of, there's a word for it, isn't it? Like synecdoche, of, of the, the sort of smaller thing representing the whole. Exactly. What you said, Rebecca, about the, in, in ancient times, not needing to sanitise that, not and their willingness to show, or I guess maybe their lack of, like, squeamishness <laughs> fewer qualms about showing all of the death that led to that victory monument um that reminded me of trajan's column which is still in rome today and all the way it, it's like a cartoon strip going up and up and up and round this huge huge column uh, and it shows trajan's campaign in dacia which is modern day romania um, he uh, had like the final great big victorious battle against the, the Dacian king was in a, a town that actually has my favourite name in the whole ancient world. It's a town called Samidzagatusa. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> it's just like the name of this place and it, it's still somewhere you can go and visit in Romania. It's quite remote though. Um, they've half reconstructed the pagan elements of it and they've half reconstructed the Roman elements of it. 
anyway, so it's all about Trajan's campaign against the Dacians, and you've got some pretty horrible details. Um, you know, some Romans coming up to Trajan with with the severed heads of their enemies, and you've also got Romans um, being tortured, it seems, by Dacian women. And that is actually quite unusual to see uh, Roman soldiers suffering on on monuments. Usually, it's it is it's gory, but it's sanitized gore actually in favor of mm. the victor. So it's like we just want to show the Romans being amazing and conquering everything. Do you think in the Western modern world we are a bit squeamish over death? We're a bit squeamish over sort of a colossal loss of life. Growing up, there's this whole. Uh, feeling in England of we don't talk about the war or we won't ask granddad about the war. We don't talk about that sort of thing. But I suppose in the ancient world, that's something to be proud of. I suppose we we don't really know what conversations were had on the ground around these monuments. Um, We have the monument only and it's from a very, very, very specific point of view. Um, But it does make me think about how much more we know about trauma now. Uh, Mm. And that's why, particularly with, with our generation, um, we're aware that people have sensitivities uh, and uh, huge losses, huge hurts. And um, whereas, you know, you look at some of the movies, you know, Troy sharing, you know, great war stories. And I suppose that must have gone on to a certain extent. But we know so little about, for example, the experiences of those left behind, because, again, they didn't want to talk about that. The emphasis had to be on the the victory and the greatness of the the Roman state or the Greek city-state or the Egyptian pharaoh. Mm. I think another really interesting aspect of that, of the relationship between kind of modern attitudes to commemoration and trauma and war, is that one of the ways that the modern world sort of mediates war and trauma is through the classical world. Like I'm thinking of all the First World War poems that reference the ancient world and ancient battles, Mm. um, like Patrick Shaw Stewart's poem, I saw a man this morning about the First World War where he's sort of comparing himself to Achilles because he's fighting, he's about to go to fight at Gallipoli, which is very near the site of Troy, basically, um, in modern day Turkey. And uh, he says, oh, hell of ships and cities. And he calls the war a fatal second Helen. And he asks Achilles to stand in the trench for him. And obviously Wilfred Owen has um, the quote from Horace as well. Dolce et decorum. Yeah, pro patria mori. Yeah, it is sweet and proper to die for your country. Is that right? Indeed, yeah. I think Wilfred Owen meant it sarcastically, didn't he? Mm. He called it the old lie. And um, I think as a result of actually Wilfred Owen's reception, there's been a lot of discussion about how Horace meant it. In the face of the poem, it comes across as earnest, very patriotic. But of course, Horace himself fought in a civil war. Um, He was on the side of Brutus and Cassius after after Julius Caesar's murder, um, and Brutus and Cassius were all about restoring the Republic the way it should be. And then they were fighting uh, Mark Antony and Octavian, who would then go on to become the first emperor, the Emperor Augustus. Uh, So Horace was actually fighting on the losing side. Uh, And then he came to be like adopted as one of the main poets under Augustus. And he actually had a really, really close friendship with Augustus. So we obviously can't get inside Horace's head and we can't know what his internal thoughts were, but it it does seem to be ultimately in favour of that statement, the way he means it. That's so interesting because there's also um, the ancient Greek playwright 
Aeschylus, who fought at the Battle of Marathon in the first Persian invasion of Greece in 490 BC. But in 472 BC, so um, 18 years later, he wrote a play called Persians, which was about the Persian defeat um, at the Battle of Salamis, which was in um, 480, uh, which was part of the same war. So he had fought on the Greek side against the Persians, but then he writes this play nearly 20 years later about the sort of Persian loss and about the grief that they faced after the Battle of Salamis and about their defeat, which I think is so interesting. Again, in that terms of, yes, in the ancient world, victory is very much, you know, glorified and glory and war is hugely important. But I think that does suggest there's also this sense of, you know, how awful it can be and that he chooses to put himself not just in the position of, you know, the Greek enemy, but in a position of the enemy that he actually himself fought against 18 years earlier. I think it's really interesting that out of tragedy, art is born, that, that we have poetry and paintings and sculptures and statues. The reason why I'm interested in ancient history is because of time teams. So I'm interested in sort of the archaeology side of things and and the monuments that we're able to discover through archaeology. And, and Rebecca, you might be able to chime in here with some archaeological info. For example, to take just a slightly different, some, you know, uh, some archaeology from a slightly different place, which is uh, Sudan, the ancient Kushite uh, people who uh, ruled Sudan from around 7th century BC to sort of 3rd, 4th century AD, um, are particularly popular with uh, archaeologists of this region because they not only had um, a number of extremely powerful queens who are known as Kandakas, and this imagery has actually been used a lot in the most recent uh, Sudan revolution, which is ongoing as of today, since 2019. This idea of you know strong, powerful people who are rising up in defence of themselves, but also... Um, what is now modern Sudan, this Kushite state, were the only ones to be totally impervious to Roman annexation. And there's a very famous bust of, uh, well, sort of a head of Augustus that they put under their temple of victory in uh, the royal city Meroe, which is where I work. Um, and they put his head underneath the um, initial sort of um, doorstone so that you symbolically um, walk over his head every single time wow. you, you enter the, the temple and it's now in the British Museum of course. I have to say I just loved I never knew that they had a head of Augustus under their temple that's obviously mm. from a Roman perspective you never hear about that but that's so cool. And you know what <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a gorgeous one as well Xenia it's you know, one of the classic uh, Augustus heads you know with his sort of blonde curly hair it's an absolutely gorgeous oh, one. Oh wow. Um, and they did these periodic raids up into Roman Egypt, would nickel their stuff and then bring it back down. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna ask: Is it, is it a spoil of war? Is it one that they've deliberately had sort of commissioned so that they could bury it underneath where they're walking? It would almost be funnier if they had commissioned it. Like we need specifically, a yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. Gonna get, it's gonna get trodden on, but. <laughs> I do. I love the symbolism of that. It's petty energy that I really identify strongly with. I have been wondering as well, as we've been talking about um, how we commemorate the dead and, and, and the ways that we do that. And as a, as a victor, it's quite easy to, to commemorate your dead uh, without sort of associated feelings of um, shame or embarrassment or loss uh, on top of just the loss of human life. But I do wonder about what it's like to be part of the losing side and how the commemoration takes place there or how remembrance takes place. Yeah, 
That is really difficult to find. I think the first thing that popped into my head, though, was actually a really recent thing. So um, the charity Classics for All organised a uh, kind of mock Supreme Court trial where they put Boudicca on trial for war crimes, Boudicca being the British queen who revolted against the Romans um, in 60 AD. Uh, and she she famously burned Colchester to the ground, which was actually the Roman capital of Britain at the time. Um, she also sacked London uh, and St Albans, uh, but then she was defeated by Roman forces. So yeah, this uh, this mock trial actually ended up acquitting Boudicca of war crimes, and I do wonder if that is you know with the benefit of hindsight and the fact that the trial took place in Britain. <laughs> the thing that came into my mind, um, it will come as a surprise to nobody, was the Iliad <laughs> when you said that, Flo. Just to explain, Rebecca, we have little sound effects for each of us if we mention our favourite things. So mine is the Emperor Hadrian and um, Meg's is Homer. <laughs> uh-huh. Yours isn't the Emperor Hadrian specifically, isn't it? You sort of swooning. <laughs> <laughs> At the, at, the, at the mention of his name. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, Homer. Uh, so the Iliad is obviously the story of the Trojan War and um, it massively glorifies war. Lots of descriptions of fighting, lots of descriptions of how kind of, and this is interesting in terms of commemoration as well, the best thing that can happen to a person is kleos, which is sort of a word meaning glory. Um, and Achilles' choice in the Iliad is between getting Kleos glory but dying young or having a long life but fading into obscurity um, and ultimately he gets Kleos and dies young uh, but not not precisely because he wants it because he has to avenge the death of Patroclus anyway that's slightly by the by um, but in the Iliad the, the losing side uh, Troy um, there's there's loads of really interesting descriptions of quite how awful that is and especially um, the women of Troy Andromache who's the wife of Hector um, the prince of Troy Andromache kind of mourns Hector before he's even dead because she knows he's going to die because the city is, is sort of doomed to fall, especially once Achilles re-enters the battle. Um, and there's a really interesting passage where she sort of says goodbye to him as he goes off to fight um, and their little son Astyanax is with them as well. And Astyanax cries because of the sight of Hector in his scary helmet. And then after Hector's gone back into the battle, Andromache and all her sort of the women around her mourn him and imagine what their lives will be like. And, and there's lots of passages like that of these women kind of imagining the sack of their city, uh, which takes place after the end of the Iliad. So we never actually see that in the Iliad, but we do get it in lots of other ancient literature. So I, that's what I thought of Flo when you said that, that because maybe we, you know, we don't get a lot of archaeological or sort of historical evidence for the, the losing side in the ancient world, but maybe literary evidence like Aeschylus' Persians as well, the play I mentioned earlier. Well, could I just offer something slightly different? I mean, this isn't archaeological evidence. This is more sort of along uh, semantic lines. Um, mm. One of my first essays at university at BA level with one of Xenia's new favourite guys, James Davidson, one of the first essays he set me was, was Alexander great? I just loved it because it, you know, it really challenges you to think on different systems of justice and um, kind of what's okay, essentially, uh, and what, what's allowed, what, what is greatness, and what was greatness then and what is greatness now. Um, and as Yuzenia, I think, said, you know, Boudicca got acquitted. Um, you know, I, I, I thought when you said that, that, you know, she's such a useful uh, symbol for the, for the UK. 
um, of course they're going to acquit her. Um, they would have a, a problem if they didn't, perhaps. But um, again, this you know, we're looking back. We really know that Alexander was a mass murderer, um, without exaggeration. And yet, when you look across, uh, you know, uh, Iran, Central Asia, um, all of the stands, not only are there, there still places called Alexandria. Iskander is a very, very popular name, and people talk about him. There are still stories told about him, even though he's the one who massacred their ancestors or people who they might see as their ancestors, but the people who inhabited, for example, modern Afghanistan, modern Pakistan, India. So again, not material evidence, more along the lines of semantics and folklore, but interesting nonetheless. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't, isn't it, that we have... Um continuing views of, of, of different people, depending on which side we think are the goodies and which are the baddies. There's that Michelin web sketch. Yeah. There in <laughs> oh there. my gosh. Are we the baddies? <laughs> are we the baddies? Exactly. Exactly that. That's a good, a good question, though. Where, when do we develop the sense? Do we ever develop the sense that we might be the baddies on a kind of national level? I think I have over the past. Uh, so I'm a millennial. I personally have gone, oh my God. I absolutely agree. I think we are the baddies, just to be absolutely clear. Yeah. But I mean on a on a national level. Yeah. I mean, I think it's growing, though. Mm. I think that's precisely the sentiment that's responsible for the repatriation of the Benin bronzes. Mm. Yeah. I do think that we're going to continue in that trend of sort of I don't know this is philosophy podcast time but <laughs> but I think I think I think you're right Rebecca I think that if we didn't have a semblance of hmm yeah. maybe that was a, a bit of a dick move then you're right we wouldn't we wouldn't um be returning things I say we like I've got any jurisdiction <laughs> personally returning <laughs> personally <laughs> I, I'm personally responsible by I have the it. Elgin marbles in my rucksack as we speak do you I'm on, I'm, I'm on my way to Athens <laughs> if you're enjoying the podcast so far why not support us on Patreon our different support tiers can get you merch shout outs and even personalised content if you want to hear more from Against the Law find us on Twitter at Against Law and we're on Instagram and TikTok. Search for at Against the Law Podcast. I wonder if we could slightly um, move towards how conflict is remembered in modern day conflict. This is really um, uh, something that I'm, I'm deeply, deeply, deeply interested in. Um, the uh, ancient Mesopotamians could have been used in any of these examples for the same reason. You know, their commemoration of war, not only against one another... Um, but against outside peoples, you know, you have this expansion, retraction, and so on. Um, and the the legacy of ancient Mesopotamia in what is modern Mesopotamia, i.e. the land between the two rivers, which is essentially Iraq, a bit of eastern Iran, a bit of the north of Kuwait, is still, you know, alive and, and well. We had you know, ISIS back in sort of 2012 to 2014. That's when I had to leave Iraq Um because I was in a city called Erbil, and they were um, moving at quite a rapid speed to the uh, east, and everyone thought that they were going to, to come in to what is now, what is uh, called Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, the Kurdish regional government. And as you know, and as, as I think got you know, widely publicised, is the fact that uh, ISIS destroyed uh, a number of 
Mesopotamian artifacts, um, mm. looted from the museum, um, actually gained a huge amount of power through selling these artifacts. So they had on the one hand this symbolic destruction of pagan pre-Islamic material culture, um, but then also the utilisation of that material culture to, to fund their war effort. Um, and alongside these uh, cultural artefacts, they were also trading, as you know, in people, uh, in weapons, in uh, minerals um, and various other um, licit, uh, sorry, illicit uh, items. Um, and this for me is, is sort of what makes archaeology one of the, the most sort of relevant things to the modern world. There's this sort of common perception that, that archaeology and, and ancient history is, is quite literally dead and buried. Um, and it's absolutely not for at least two, you know, the, the two reasons that I've just mentioned. Um, there's also something uh, called enforced neglect, uh, for example, of non-Russian heritages by the Russian state. China's one belt, one road strategy um, is a sort of way of utilising so-called soft power uh, and working with other countries outside your own nation to work together on heritage in a you know, so-called non-benign way that, of course, carries with it a huge amount of, of influence. So, but beyond those sort of facts and the, 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 the fact that archaeology and history work in these ways, um, there are increasing um, measures being taken to preserve um, this material culture, particularly working with nations that have underdeveloped antiquity services um, and to bring in funding from, for example, big UK or American funding bodies in order to, to preserve it. And there are some good rationales for it. I mean, it's definitely part of our soft power strategy too. Uh, again, we, we're, we're the baddies too, but we're um, at least attempting to do something uh, different. Um, there's been a lot of work done on this recently, um, and there's a lot of evidence to show, for example, displaced communities are more likely to return their community of origin if their cultural heritage is, has remained intact. Um, and of course, memories of the heritage being destroyed justifies violence in the future because you have these stories, you know, this, you know that the Brits, they came here and they nicked our stuff um, and creates modern issues. Um, and again, as I say, it, it can also be used in this therapeutic manner. People returning home to their communities or rebuilding um, their monuments and so on. Lalesh, the, the Yazidi um, religious centre uh, in northern Iraq, um, is a big uh, example of this um, because, as you know, the, during the, the years where ISIS was uh, you know, in control of that huge territory, which is essentially um, ancient Assyria, the, the ancient Assyrian heartland, um, the Yazidis were persecuted, sold, enslaved, killed, and so on. And so now there are huge efforts, millions and millions of dollars going into restoring these temples, making sure that they have their um, you know, religious needs met. And of course, it's only half of the story because we said there's lots of trauma surrounding this. There's huge amounts of psychological damage that many people will never be able to recover from. However, archaeology, history and, and material and, and immaterial heritage can really sort of play a big role in this. Absolutely. I love that you've um, described archaeology as being particularly not dead i mean it, it it expands my sort of my understanding hugely because of course i know about the destruction 
by ISIS of of um, artifacts or monuments or sites. But the, but to me, my my experience of archaeology, as I've said, is sort of like the nice sort of time team oh we found a nice mosaic in somerset lovely let's get our resources down there and um either like bury it back or we'll open a nice little um heritage site there it's <laughs> such a sheltered view and i love that you've expanded my view of archaeology being a, a very current thing that is happening that is having an impact yeah absolutely also that that sense of like archaeology is like you say Rebecca and Flo like a living thing and a dynamic thing where it's not just a, a dead thing in the ground I, I dig it if you'll excuse the pun I just hey! thought I was like, hey, very <laughs> it's a really nice explanation of archaeology being so current yes sorry yes. <laughs> considering if I, if I may you know just blabber on just one more minute only because it's just I've just sort of remembered of course when this is coming out which is on Remembrance Sunday so have any of you guys seen the film The Monuments Men with George Clooney yeah, it's so good. It's a really nice film. It's a great film, and it, it basically shows for for, for any um, listeners who, who don't know, um, it's basically a uh, a unit of uh, the British Army who went uh, around Europe um, reclaiming the the sort of the heritage that had been stolen from. Uh, the Jewish communities, you know, from the gypsy communities uh, and and things like that, and restoring them to their original owners. And they were called the Monuments Men because this was their sort of mandate and they were removed from sort of ordinary duty. They were still uniformed officers. Um, They had this very specific mandate, which was to, yeah, like reclaim heritage, monuments, material culture that had been stolen from these persecuted communities. And um, I'm not trying to plug myself here, but it's just something relevant to what I'm, I'm doing currently. I suppose it is a bit of a shameless plug, actually. Um, <laughs> but, um, the, the British Army is currently regrouping um, this unit, um, and it's part of the uh, British Army's 77th Brigade. Uh, they're broadly called the Outreach Unit, and they're looking at all of the stuff that's not traditional warfare. So not tanks, not guns, not the RAF. It's more about virtual intelligence. It's about, um, you know, talking to communities that, you know, where, in, in places where you're stationed. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, this um, this new unit, which is called the Cultural Property Protection Unit. So there's actually quite a nice link there between the fact that this is going out on Remembrance Day and the fact that the British Army is, is currently, um, you know, recruiting for this this small unit. So I'm on my way hopefully, to Sandhurst next year for uh, <gasps> and um, to do some, some, some basic training. I mean, I can't run, but I'll have to learn. <laughs> wow, <laughs> and, um, that's amazing. Again, it, it's all linked to this idea, like, that they're, they're, they're smart enough to realise, um, and because we only recently re-signed the, the Hague Convention, which recognises, um, you know, this, the, the importance of heritage to people's psychology, um, we only recently ratified that convention, and that convention says once ratified, you have to set up this unit. So it's been happening sort of piecemeal over the past few years, but now things are in reasonably full swing, and they're you know uh, they hopefully we working with Interpol and other sort of global organisations to make this a sort of global effort because as we know these supply chains, modern supply chains of antiquities go along with drugs, people, weapons. Mineral resources, they're, they're all part and parcel of that same 
um, illicit economic activity and they go through national uh, boundaries. It's not just Italy's problem or our problem or Nigeria's problem. Um, these are, you know, global uh, issues. And if you've got this sort of cosmopolitan mindset, um, which apparently we do, um, this is one of the sort of things that, that you have to tackle. But it's very much inspired by this post-World War II uh, reclamation um, of material culture for the people who had it stolen from them. Wow, that that's is incredible. incredibly exciting. That is so cool. Mm. So as we draw this episode to a close, we're going to have a recap of our favourite thing. So Rebecca, what was your favourite thing that you've learned from today's podcast? My favourite thing was the town in Romania that Xenia mentioned, which I simply cannot reproduce. Oh yeah, Xenia, what's it called? It's called Samidzigatusa. Samidzigatusa. Lovely. It's amazing. It's a beautiful word, isn't it? And um, Okay, well, Xenia, I'm going to hop to you. What was your favourite thing from today's podcast? So my favourite thing was the Augustus Head in Meroe. I just thought that was yeah, so cool. It was amazing. It was amazing. That was going to be mine as well, I have to admit. And, and Meg, was, ball, but was uh, it yours as well? Yeah, that was mine as well. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> a clear winner. It's probably it's probably the favourite thing I've ever heard about on this podcast because yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. so incredibly petty. I love it. Meg, I'm going to give you Augustus's head. Actually, no, yes. that's not fair. Yes, no, it is. Fair. Yeah, that's right. fair. You can have Augustus's head. And then, uh, Xenia, what else? What can we go for? Do you reckon we should just all concede that Augustus's head is the best thing we've yeah. ever heard? Yeah. So, yeah. It's so sassy. I love it. Okay. I think we'll right. allow that. We have, yes. we have a group favourite thing. This is the first time it's happened. It yeah. is the first time it's happened. It's just such a good symbol of um, stomping on, on the enemy's head. Yeah, that kind of sums it up. It does. It really does. Thank you for joining us, Rebecca. And uh, we'll catch you next time, the next episode of Against the Law. Hold up. 